0: Good morning, everyone. So we are in a series uh, in the Sermon on the Mountain. Can I just start with a bit of an honest confession? Um, Some of you are like, no, let's not do that. I don't like it when you say honest confession. But here, I I think I just want to say, I think as I have been looking at this passage, uh, looking at this sermon, I think I told you last week that I have this sermon memorized, um, it's uh, maybe some of the most important words to me in my life. Uh, I guess I I feel a bit unmanned uh, by the moment to talk about the words of Jesus and to just stand here and to give you something, to give us something as a church uh, feels a bit daunting. These are the words of Jesus. To us. And I think our hope is that as we look at the words of Jesus, um, as we take time to examine what Jesus tells us about what it's like to actually live a flourishing life, um, I think our hope is that you take these words to heart and uh, that you would leave here uh, on mission, um, I guess. That maybe this would even change the way that you think about your daily life. Oh, I know that's pretty ambitious, but I think that's kind of what Jesus is after. And so today we're going to look at anger. Uh, and we're going to look at anger sort of as a lens through which we look at the rest of chapter five. Uh, chapter five, we started last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter five, the Beatitudes. This week, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 5. You might recall that I said last week that uh, there's no way that we're going to be able to look at every single verse. Um, Every single verse, it would be impossible unless we spend the next 10 years or so in the Sermon on the Mount, which would be totally worthwhile, by the way, but that's not how we've approached it. Uh, What we are attempting to do is, with each of these messages in the Sermon on the Mount, provide maybe some framing. And then to look at maybe one of the examples that Jesus gives us as to how to maybe read the rest of the sermon. And so um, in the section we're about to read on anger, uh, you're going to hear about the law. So when you think about the law, maybe one way that you can think about the law is the Ten Commandments. We're all familiar with the Ten Commandments, yes? Some of us are, I think. Um, Ten Commandments, Exodus. Anybody remember on the tablets of stone? This, Yes? Some of us know what that means. Um, and I think that the law, the Ten Commandments in particular, uh, is generally misunderstood. So um, I think that if you were a Hebrew, you thought of the law as the picture of what it means to be the people of God in the world, so the law was like a crystalline picture of what it means to live as the people of God um, in the world. The God who wills our flourishing, and so for the Hebrews, I I believe that the Hebrews, when they looked at the law, were like, okay, this is God's own very words to us about what it means to have. The good life, which is not how we normally talk about the law, is it? And so I think what I want to say is I want to say we really need the law. We need it. We need everything in the Old Testament. I am not a pastor who will tell you we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. No, uh, I want to tell you we need everything in the law. Um, and and I I. I I think that what this passage uh, that we're going to look at today talks about is it talks about the true intent of the law. Um, This is why Jesus tells us he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, Today, I think we're going to look at one of the most famous insights from this sermon, um, which is that the ethical life must marry our heart and our actions. So it must be integrated. Yes. If we want to flourish in this life and in the life to come, not only must we not say murder, for example, but we must deal with our murderous hearts. And I think also um, what we know about the law is we know that we need another better law, not a law that abolishes that law, but a law that fulfills it, the law of the Spirit who gives life. The law... Of the spirit who enables us to fulfill the true intention of that law. All right. So, okay, that's all prelude to Matthew chapter five. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter five. We're going to look at anger as sort of a sort of a way to look at the rest of five, all the way from verse 17 to the rest of the chapter, right? So here We're going to look at anger, um, and here's what Jesus tells the people gathered um, on the mountain. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, or empty-headed fool is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in the danger will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus, what is he doing? He's describing some actions. He's talking about calling a person a fool, calling them an idiot, calling them vastly empty. Uh, but this is not actually about calling a person an idiot. Much to some of our relief. Um, how many of you have, in your heart, called a person an idiot. Um, yeah, thank you for your honest confession, this morning. Um, I'm sure you're the only ones. I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, of course. Um, it's not about the calling a person an idiot. It's actually about having the kind of heart that would cause a posture in which you looked at other human beings as idiots. Remember, Jesus got angry too. Did he not? Remember, he overturned tables. Remember he scattered the coins of the money changers. Uh, he even called the Pharisees snakes. Um, but his anger was not the kind of anger that he's describing in this passage. Jesus' anger was the loving and righteous kind because it was animated by love. And here's how I know that. when Jesus was on the cross, the people that were uh, going to mur- were murdering him, what did he say? Do you remember what he said? from the cross did he say Raca, you fools you will get you will, I will get my revenge in three days if I appear at your door after you have supposedly killed me I just want you to know just want you to know it's coming no he didn't what did he say he said father forgive them for they do not know what they do he loved his killers So what's the difference between what Jesus is describing and Jesus' own heart? Well, um, here's here's a German word that might help us a little bit. Does anyone know the word schadenfreude? Does anyone know what that means? It means pleasure derived from someone else's misfortune. Uh, You can tell when you are headed down the road of a murderous heart, when you have the kind of anger that causes you to fantasize about someone's harm. Uh, anybody ever do that before? I have. I've thought uh, at length. I remember when I was um, uh, I was at a Korean camp. I'm like I'm am I'm Korean. In case that wasn't obvious, but I remember um, I went to a Korean camp as a little, as a kind of a young teenage boy. Um, my parents, we would go, I mean, that's sort of rite of passage for an immigrant. You would go to, uh, back to the homeland. So we'd go to the homeland sometimes for like months at a time. And I remember going one summer and my uh, grandfather, who was a dignitary in Korea, um, he was the five-star general in the Korean Marines. He like got me into this exclusive like camp at a university for Korean expat kids. So there were Korean American kids. And I, and I think I came to Korea a little too late to be at the start of the camp, but my grandfather got me in, so I got in a little bit late. And I was the kid that came in late because he had a really important grandfather to all these other kids who probably didn't want to be there. And they were just like, I'm here because my parents sent me to this camp and I really don't want to be here. And why am I here? And so then here this new kid comes in, and this new kid who, whose grandfather is wealthy and has a lot of clout. And so what ends up happening? What do you think ends up happening? Do I become the hero? And everybody is like, oh, thank God Ted's here. No, I, everyone hates me from the start. And I am bullied mercilessly day after day after day. Uh, And actually, it was pretty much everybody that bullied me. And it was a camp of like, not just like 10 kids, you know, it was like 50, 60, 70. And they all bullied me. And I just remember seething inside. And I remember there wasn't anything I could do because they could all overpower me. And I just remember thinking, like, when this camp ends, I'm going to go home and I'm going to lift weights. And I'm going to lift weights and I'm going to become huge. And then I'm going to find all their addresses and I'm going to hunt them down. And I'm going to knock on their door and I'm going to say, remember me? I was this small, but now I'm this wide. And obviously that never happened. Um, but I fantasized about their harm. Uh, And I did that, not just for like a day or two, I did that for weeks at a time, months at a time. I think this is what kind of Jesus is talking about when he says, this is what it's like to have a murderous heart. I mean, I think even, I knew back then, probably doing this is not helpful for me. (laughs) Yeah, if I keep, like, if I stay stuck in this cycle and I become huge and I become like, this imposing figure, and I become like the greatest wrestler of all time, or whatever, and I do it only because I'm angry, I don't think that's the good life. Do you? That's part of what Jesus is saying to us. If your anger derives from the kind of pleasure, the shodden for you, the kind of pleasure that you get from someone else's harm, man, that is not the good life. And, And look, this is how this passage intersects with social justice. Uh, Because are we animated by the same love that Jesus had in his heart for his killers or are we animated by schadenfreude? Are we hoping for the misfortune of the perpetrators of oppression or do we love them? You know, when George Floyd was murdered, uh, it stirred up the justifiable rage of our black and brown brothers and sisters, did it not? Yes, and some of it was righteous. I believe that. But I believe some of it wasn't. I hope it's okay for me to say that. Um, I believe some of some of the anger was animated by a kind of murderous intention that Jesus warns us against, the kind that can become, as uh, Dr. Esau Macaulay tells us, like a wheel. And it's a wheel that continues to run us toward, um, Esau uses the word nihilism or utter meaninglessness. Nihilism is the opposite of flourishing. Nihilism is destruction. So if dangerous anger is a wheel that threatens to catch us up. Like just imagine a big snowball coming down a hill to catch you up in its wake. What will break the wheel? And here's Jesus saying, that wheel must be broken or you will head toward nihilism. The wheel is broken, as Macaulay tells us, by the cross. The cross functions as the end of the cycle of vengeance and death. Because as Macaulay tells us, Jesus himself enters into our pain. What's the wheel broken by? It's actually broken by by love. And so then as we look at our hearts, and as we think about doing justice, which we will talk about at our conference, are we on the wheel, or is the wheel broken? You know, like I, um, I'm talking about being Korean. Um, if I say this a little bit cautiously, but my own Korean people uh, were imprisoned and kidnapped by an imperial power less than a hundred years ago. Less than a hundred years ago, Koreans were under the thumb of an, another imperial country, and I, and I. I, um, they were on the wheel, in other words. And, uh, I actually wonder if this is why the gospel took such hold in South Korea. Um, when missionaries came, I mean, the gospel of Jesus Christ, I mean, it captured the heart of that country, my home country. And I wonder if part of what was happening is we needed someone to break the wheel And that's what Jesus came to do. Which leads us kind of to this phrase, danger of the fire of hell, for a moment. Can we talk about that? What does it mean that anger leads us to, or puts us in danger of the fire of hell? I mean, I think Jesus is telling us about something something very important about rage. He's telling us that it could be demonic. I mean, I think of uh, Korean scholar Andrew Park, who tells us, I mean, like just in speaking about Koreans for a moment, he says that the anger Koreans harbor toward the nation that oppressed them, that has become sort of intricated in their national pride or their, they use the word Han. Andrew Park calls that demonic. I think Jesus is telling us anger can be demonic. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you think about it. How many of you have ever been so angry that you did something you regretted? Anyone? Most of us have, yes? Said something that you didn't mean to? Uh, Anybody ever got so angry that it took you, not like a couple seconds to cool down, but like maybe 10 or 15 minutes to cool down? Anyone? How, How many of you are familiar with that feeling, that surge of adrenaline? And your heart starts beating really fast, and you do things that feel like they're totally out of character for you. Anybody have that experience before? That's what happens with anger. You know, anger takes us over. I remember, like, I was driving on the streets of Chicago, which is very dangerous for the demonic nature of anger, by the way. And a car pulls out in front of me, and I'm with my little kids, and I'm taking them to school, and and the car pulls out in front of us, and I'm thinking, man, that could have just, like oh, that could have endangered, that endangered all of us. And so I started laying on the horn. And you know, like sometimes when you get really angry, you lay on the horn and then your hand, it doesn't come off the horn. You're like, why is my hand still on the horn? And then you press harder and harder because, you know, when you press the horn harder, it gets louder. Does anybody know that? No, it doesn't actually, but my kids are in the back going, what's Going on, Daddy? What's happening? And I'm just laying on the horn. I'm laying on it. I'm pressing on it. I'm pressing on it. I'm pressing on it because anger has taken undue control of me. And this is what I think is really interesting about what Jesus is saying about the demonic nature of anger. I think he's telling us that we need to be rescued from it. We need him to break the wheel. Yes? Like uh, just as there seems to be like a supernaturally charged component to anger, he's saying, well, there must be a supernaturally charged intervention to it as well, which is why Jesus tells us right before in these verses, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished." Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And here here's a real kicker, verse twenty, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does all of that mean? Jesus has not come to abolish the law. Remember, we talked about the law being the picture of the flourishing life. There is something that is not flourishing about getting angry. This is what Jesus is telling us. Being angry and being stuck in the demonic cycle of anger, that wheel is not the good life. Here's what Jesus and Jesus is saying: I'm gonna fulfill that law. I'm not gonna abolish it, but I'm gonna fulfill it. And here's how I'm gonna do that: I'm gonna do it with my life. I'm going to fulfill the law with the way that I act in my heart, all my actions in my life. Which he did. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He obeyed it perfectly. He fulfilled it for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not just to fulfill the law through this, through the through the the perfect life, but also, um, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, as an offering for sin. So he both lived righteously as a human, but he also fulfilled the law by being an offering for sin. Here's how Tim Mackey puts it. God loved humanity in its weakness and failure and punished sin and condemned sin through Jesus dying on the cross. This is what Tim Mackey tells us, like, here, let me give you an illustration to explain. Here's how Jesus fulfills the law. So in Chicago, we have these cameras now. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Cameras. This is why some of you live in Skokie. You don't want to live in Chicago. And the cameras, they take pictures of us when we speed. Or we run red lights, that sort of thing. And then you get an envelope in the mail four months after you turned red on a red. And you don't even remember it, but there it is. The picture of your ratty little car with your, you know, and then you see the lights go off. When you see, you see the cameras go off. Don't you see, you know what I'm talking about, yes? When you're turning and then you see the cameras go off and you're like, oh man, that person's going to get a letter. You you know what I'm talking about, yes? So, okay, so so here's part, here's an illustration. Okay, so we fulfill the law law of Chicago, when we don't speed or we don't run red lights, yes? But then, uh, we also fulfill the law by paying the fine, don't we? Some of us do. Some of us look at those, those envelopes and go, no, nah, I'm not paying that. Um, here, here's how it relates to Jesus. The late Tim Keller says, this is the way to think about the two ways that Jesus fulfills the law. He first fulfills the law himself. And then, in that he's our exemplar, but then secondly, he pays the penalty. He pays the fine. So what's the penalty for our, 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 um, our sin? Well, it's sin and death. Uh, the fine that comes from our breaking of the law is paid, actually, by Jesus. But I think Keller misses the third crucial component of fulfillment. I'm sure if he were having a conversation with me, he'd tell me, well, yes, of course, Ted. But that third component is the spirit. So how, do we, how does Jesus fulfill the law? Well, he fulfills it by doing it himself. He fulfills it by paying the fine. But he also fulfills it by letting us and giving us power to fulfill it too. So it gives us the spirit. And why does it give the spirit? To empower us to fulfill the law. The Spirit transforms us, the Spirit remakes us, the Spirit mends us, the Spirit restores us. The Spirit is the grace, as Paul says in Titus, that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is why Jesus says, unless your righteousness or your right living surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, well, how can that actually happen? It can only happen through the Spirit. The Spirit in us helps us, mends us, restores us, gives us power, changes us from the inside out, and this power is absolutely necessary for the good life. You can't do it unless the Spirit is in you, to change you, to make you different, to make you the kind of person that wouldn't have a murderous heart. And we can apply this to all the other instantiations of the true intent of the law that follow in Matthew 5. Spirit helps us in our sexual fidelity. The Spirit helps us to love our enemies. The Spirit helps us in our speech. This is an ethic that is not meant to bury us, but to empower us. So the application today is simply this. Come to the one who can heal our anger. Jesus is the one who can heal our anger. Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the command, and not only that, he took on all the anger that humanity had to offer. Come to Him. Be filled with the Spirit and become the kind of person who is peaceable. I mean, today, we can actually begin to walk into that freedom. Yes? Because the Spirit in us can make us different. Uh, I see a therapist um, who tells me that what I have just told you is the most important part of combating any kind of vice or anger. And it tells us the most important part of, of, of the work of changing behavior. I mean, I see this therapist who tells me that knowing the way things work, knowing the underlying themes, knowing the spiritual spirituality at play, knowing like kind of what's happening in our hearts, knowing what's happening inside of us, my therapist tells me this is the most important work. This is what you have to get present to as he, to use his language. This is what he would call bottom-up thinking. We need to know the underlying why uh, before we get to any techniques for combating any type of thing, including anger. Occasionally, my therapist will give me a technique um, after we've talked about the whys. Um, and I want to give you a technique as we close here. Let me tell you what one of the early monastics said about combating anger. Evagrius Ponticus, I don't don't know if I'm saying his name right, but somebody will come up and correct me if I'm not. Um, Turbid anger or disturbing anger is calmed. This is what Evagrius Ponticus, very, very famous early monastic who talked a lot about the passions. Turbid anger is calmed by the singing of psalms, by patience and almsgiving. But all these practices are to be engaged in according to due measure and at the appropriate times. What is untimely done or done without measure endures but a short time. And what is short-lived is more harmful than profitable. It's so a part of what Evagrius, I think, is saying, is he's saying that you got to know the bottom up. Uh, but here, let me, let me talk about what Evagrius is telling us. So Evagrius is telling us that we need our anger needs to be calmed by the singing of psalms, by patience, and by almsgiving, which is a little surprising that our generosity would actually be an antidote to our anger. But, but let me just talk about singing the psalms for a moment. How many of you have read the psalms and been like, man, this doesn't seem like it would be a really good songbook for the church? Anybody ever read the psalms and go, these feel pretty angry, actually? You know, like uh, I mean, the precatory psalms. If anyone knows what I'm talking about, you get extra credit. Um, but these psalms actually are very honest, and they're brutal in their honesty. And I think this is part of what Evagri- why Evagrius tells us that we should sing the psalms, because you'll notice that David, who himself offered more than seventy of the psalms, he's a pretty angry dude. And you'll also notice, if you look at the psalms, that the psalms are full of what we would call lament. Yes? So lament is like prayer expressing sorrow, pain, or confusion. It's a practice, actually, that the church did a lot. The American church doesn't do very much of, and I think it's a shame. We should embrace the practice of lament. Because lament is often like the best response to our world, the world that is not as it should be. You know, I wonder if, uh, I I mean, I could talk a whole lot about lament, but I I can't because I'm running out of time. But I just wonder if David, who himself, by the way, was bullied by his King Saul, I, 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 I just wonder if lament healed him. Uh, because if you read the account of David, I mean, he's pretty angry. You couldn't tell by reading that account. I mean, like you, you'd see that over and over and over again, David, David like expresses love to, to Saul. He spares his life on multiple occasions. And I wonder if it was lament that actually healed the turbid anger that was in him. You know, so the next time you're angry, I wonder if one of the things that you might do is you might take Psalm 13, say, and say, and just like maybe pin that on your dashboard for the next time somebody pulls out in front of you. How long, Lord? Psalm 13. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will these drivers in Chicago triumph over me. I'm serious. It actually, I think it works. And why does it work? Because this singing of the Psalms, like the kind of change we need is not kind of like the quick change, you know, like a a diet. We need like the change that happens to wine. Fermentation. That's what we need. We need long-term change. The long changes are the best kind of changes, aren't they? And here's what I think what, what Evagris is telling us is he's telling us, this is why it can't be short-lived, short-lived. It's more harmful than profitable. You need, you need, um, the kind of change that's like fermentation. I mean, I, I have one more important thing to say about these passages. Um, and I only have like a minute to do it and I'll just say it really, really quickly. And then we'll, we'll, um, we'll close. I mean, uh, we normally read this passage in Matthew chapter five, and we think about ourselves. Like, so we read chapter five, and we go, "Man, I shouldn't be angry, because if I'm angry, I'll be in the danger of fire or of hell." But look at what Jesus continues to say. He says, "Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar." First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gifts. And then he goes on to say, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're together still on the way, or still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Why does Jesus mention that at the end? Well, I think he mentions that at the end because he is also saying to us, this anger thing, it's a social ethic. You're angry at somebody. It's not just anger inside, it's anger at somebody else. And here's the thing, if you are the kind of person, or not even the kind of person, but if you make your brother or sister angry, that's dangerous or harmful for them. So why does he, he close with, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, he's saying that out of mercy for your brother or sister. Don't make them angry, because when you make them angry, it's not the good life. So reconcile with them, do whatever you can, whether you are right or you're wrong, it doesn't matter. Jesus isn't saying, like, make a careful record of whether you're right or wrong, and make sure that person knows it, and make sure that person knows that you're being kind to them by going and reconciling to them. He doesn't even say that. He says anger is so destructive and so dangerous, do whatever you can, do whatever you can, to reconcile with them so they they don't live in the kind of anger that is dangerous and puts them actually in the danger of the fire of hell. That's part of what Jesus is telling us. He's saying, don't be angry. And then number two, if anyone's angry with you, go and make it right, because it's really, really dangerous. And you can apply that to basically every single one of these things in the rest of Matthew. Uh, Why does he tell us to to, why is he so clear about adultery and the lustful heart? Well, because the practice of divorcing women back in the day for the most trivial of matters was, it was actually pushing women into prostitution. He's like, this is a social ethic. The Sermon on the Mount is not a self-help program to make you better. It's an ethic for an entire community, an entire people. That's what Matthew 5 is about. Matthew 5. And if you read the rest of Matthew 5, I would love for you to keep two lenses as you read the rest of Matthew 5. The first lens, this is the good life. The second lens, what does this mean for my brother or sister? All right, so uh, I am over time, but I want to leave with two, I, I guess, two, two questions. The first question is, do you need the fermentation of the Spirit to be free from anger? If you need that, we, just want, we want to pray that right now. We just want to pray that the Spirit begin the, process, begin the process of the fermentation that's required for us to become the kind of people that aren't angry. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, do you are you sitting here and do you know right now, without even having to think about it, that there is someone who is angry with you? And listen, I'm not talking about the people that are always angry. You know what I'm talking about, right? The people that always just, I'm looking for an excuse to be angry, or even are abusive in their anger. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about anyone who is angry with you, um, someone that you're close to, maybe someone that's not, and how, in light of these words in Matthew 5, could you make it right? Can we all stand? Let's all stand. I pray for those two things um, very quickly as we close. Uh, the first thing is just that the Spirit would fill us. Um, if, if we could do what we normally do here in the vineyard, if you want to receive, just hold your hands out. We'll receive one. We'll pray that the Spirit would fill us. But then also, I want to leave you with the strong encouragement. Would you go and make it right with someone who's angry with you? All right? So, Spirit of God, come fill us. Bring your power, God. Make us different people and make the change not a short-lived one, but a lasting one. And would you do all that in Jesus' name, amen.